Well, please turn in your Bibles to James chapter 1, James 1. And the guys have some Bibles, and they're going to make their way down the aisle. So if you need a Bible, get their attention, and they'll get one to you that is marked at James chapter 1, so you don't have to worry about where that's located. Just uh, flip to where it's marked, and you'll be there. Well, practice makes perfect, we are told. But the truth of the matter is, far more people start lessons of various sorts than actually complete them. Piano teachers know this. Karate masters know this. The fact is, more people quit than finish. And good leaders in any organization know it as well, because they know that folks will only perform mundane tasks, they will only perform those tasks well if they know that they're connected to something worthwhile. People will only go through the motions, do the practice, the mundane stuff, whether it's for a sport, whether it's for a skill, whether it is at work, and they will only do those consistently and well if they know that what they are doing is connected to something that's worthwhile. And so you take, for instance, someone whose job is on an assembly line. I've never worked on an assembly line. Those of you who have, you can correct me, but I am told that there are some tasks along the assembly line that can be very tedious and mundane. And whatever it is, the widget goes by, and you've got a particular thing you do every time that widget goes by. There might be a thousand of them in a day, and the next day you're going to start the same thing, and you're going to do precisely the same thing every time it goes by. Tedious and monotonous. And so those who are good business leaders in a manufacturing facility like that make sure that that guy knows that what he's doing leads to an end product. That there's actually something worthwhile in this mundane task that you're doing. It also leads to your paycheck. And perhaps profit sharing. All the incentives that can be provided in order to give motivation to do that which is otherwise difficult. These tedious, monotonous tasks will not be endured well unless the participant is convinced that it's worth it. Now notice, I've said a few times that these things will not be performed well or they will not be endured well. That is, the practice sessions and the tasks may be performed and endured, but they'll only be done well if the one who does them knows and believes that it's worthwhile. The fact is that you and I will only endure life's trials well if we know and we believe that there is good reason for doing so. We must believe that the end of the path makes the journey worthwhile. And if we don't believe that, we will quit. James 1 teaches that God allows trials in our lives. We saw last week that these trials are difficult circumstances and that God allows them, James tells us, for two reasons. The first is to test whether we really, genuinely, authentically believe. And that's why verse 3 of chapter 1 says that these trials represent, here's the phrase, the testing of your faith. 
And I reminded you last week that the word that's translated faith in your New Testament is the same word for belief. So you could say that's what, what is being tested in these difficult circumstances is what I believe. The testing of your belief. God tests what we really believe by allowing these difficult circumstances into our lives. And there's a second reason that he allows trials. It's in order to make our, fa- make our faith and make us stronger. And so verse 3 not only says the testing of your faith, but it says the testing of your faith does something. It develops perseverance. The reality then of a genuine, authentic, living faith is demonstrated by its reaction to various circumstances that God allows into our lives. And faith, belief, is such a vital matter for those who are followers of Jesus that it needs to be put to the test in order to prove that it's genuine and in order to make it and us stronger. Now, we want to see what it is that God says in this passage he is looking to produce in us through these difficult, day-by-day, often mundane tasks that he has called us to. What is it that he's looking to produce that makes it worthwhile for us to endure as he has prescribed? Let's ask God to help us as we do. Our Father, we thank you for the word of God, your word. Because it is your word, it has the stamp of approval of the omniscient, sovereign God who made this world and knows it intimately and knows us intimately. And therefore, you are able to say in your word things that are profound and things that see into our hearts and things that address what we are going through in this very day, even though the last book of your word was penned nearly 2,000 years ago. So we thank you for instructing us and not leaving us to grope in the dark. Help us as we look at your word this and every Lord's day to open our hearts, to have clear minds, and to accurately see what you are telling us as your people. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. We saw last week in the opening message in this series through the book of James And if you were not here for that, and if you miss any of them along the way, I encourage you to listen. We have all of our messages online at our website. But we saw last week that James is Jesus' half-brother. Jesus was the firstborn of of Mary, not of Mary and Joseph, miraculously born, virgin-born. But then subsequent to Jesus' birth, there were brothers and sisters born to Mary and Joseph. We saw in Mark chapter 6 that the Bible mentions a number of them by name. And the Bible refers to one of those, James, as the Lord's brother. He's Jesus' half-brother. And he was also the pastor of the very first church. The first church anywhere at any time in history, the very first church was established in the city of Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost as recorded in Acts chapter 2 in your Bible. And the one who presided over that dynamic and very large assembly was none other than James, the Lord's brother, the half-brother of of Jesus. And verse 1 of James chapter 1 says that James is a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ and that he is writing to, verse 1 says, the 12 tribes that are scattered among the nations. That phrase, the 12 tribes, is a reference to 
the Jewish race, those that were part of, part of Israel, part of uh, the Jewish race who have now been scattered among the nations. So James is saying, I am writing to my racial brethren. I'm writing to the Jews. James is a Jew. Jesus was a Jew. All of the first founders of the church were Jewish. That first church in Jerusalem was a Jewish church. And now James, that pastor of that first church, is writing then to Jewish Christians that are scattered among the nations. This shepherd, this pastor, is now writing to encourage them in what he knows they need right now and in what he anticipates they are going to need as they live the life that they found in Christ. Now, take a look at the outline that's inserted in your program, if you would. Part of it is filled in because we filled in a portion of it last, last week, and we didn't finish. And we saw last week that we must respond to trials for a number of reasons. We must respond to them. The first reason given is that they are unavoidable. That is, verse number 2 says, Con- Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds, of many kinds. Now notice, it's when, not if. And that's why we say they are unavoidable. And that is why it's necessary for us to respond to them. We must respond to them. Respond we will. The only question is, how will I respond? I'm going to have these trials. When, not if. I will respond to them. I must respond to them. The question is how. We must respond because they're unavoidable. And then we say unexpected. Because verse 2 says, whenever you face trials. We saw that the word that's translated face is used in Luke chapter 10 and verse 30 in the parable of the Good Samaritan of the man who was simply traveling along and then the Bible says he fell among thieves. Well, that's the same word used here whenever you fall among trials. (laughs) Whenever you're going along through life and something, or as we're going to see, someone hits you as a difficult circumstance. So they're, they're unexpected. You fall into them. You didn't plan for them. You don't want them. And they're also unlimited in their variety. Verse 2 says, of various kinds, of many kinds. The King James Version says they are divers, diverse temptations, trials. There are many sorts. I gave some of those examples last week. A physical malady, an employment problem, a financial distress. They're of all sorts and and of all sizes. But we are going to see a little bit later, well, let's consider, in fact now, that these trials can not only be circumstances that are things that happen to us, but consider this. They can be people that happen to us. (laughs) The trial can be a person. Now, we usually think of trials as some circumstantial thing. My job, my health, my finances. But that difficult circumstance that God allows into our lives can also be a person. And how are we going to handle that thing or that person is going to determine whether or not we achieve the purpose that God has for us in this trial and whether or not we can do secondly what we say in the outline. 
whether or not we can and do respond to those trials with joy. We saw last week that this joy is not joy, meaning pleasure, in the circumstance, but rather joy because of what we know is going to be achieved because of this particular trial. And so Jesus had joy because of what he saw set before him. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2. He endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. The cross was not pleasurable, but Jesus saw the end of the cross and thus was able to endure it with joy. Do you remember that we saw last week? Joy can be defined this way. Joy is an abiding sense of delight that God is at work in my life. So we must respond to these trials because they're unavoidable. They're going to happen and do happen to all of us. We can respond with joy, we saw last week. But we also can respond, we say in your outline, with perseverance. Perseverance. Verse 3 says this. You can consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. Here's why. Because you know that the testing of your faith does this. It develops perseverance. Now some translations say, worketh patience. And so instead of perseverance, you have the English word patience. But patience does not capture the idea because for most of us, patience implies a passive waiting. But this word, one commentator says, has the quality that enables a man to stand on his feet facing the storm. And so rather than this being a passive resignation, and I'll just wait it out, we're to persevere which is an active participation in what God is seeking to accomplish through this circumstance or through this person. Picture it like, like this. We, uh, as a family, went a few years ago to Niagara Falls. And on the U.S. side of the falls, there is the Niagara Falls State Park in New York. And there is the Cave of the Winds. And you walk down, have you been to this, the Cave of the Winds? And you walk down a, a bunch of wooden steps and you go to a deck that's called the hurricane deck. You're close enough to the mist of the falls that it's splashing you and you're getting, these, you're getting the, the breeze off of that. And you have to kind of hang on. And it's a lot of fun as long as you, as long as you hang on. Now you're, you're, you're hanging on and you're just hanging on to survive. And that's the way many people think of the trials that God allows to come our way. Just, just hang on, just wait through it. But God says it's more than that. It is, it is perseverance. And the word means this. It means to, to bear up under pressure. To bear up under the pressure of the circumstance or the person that represents the particular trial. And if we respond properly to the trial, then we'll learn to bear up under various kinds of trial. And so God brings a trial, and I do what He says. And His purpose is accomplished in me in that trial. It better equips me now for other trials of various types as I move forward. And so the Bible says this about, about trials. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 3, it says this, We rejoice in our sufferings because we know. Sounds very much like James 1, doesn't it? 
that we can have joy in these trials because we know that the testing of our faith works perseverance. Paul says we rejoice in our sufferings because we know something. Here's what we know. That suffering produces perseverance. But then he goes on to say this. Perseverance develops character and character develops hope. So this perseverance that Paul talks about in Romans 5 and James talks about in James chapter 1, this bearing up under pressure, actively participating in what God is seeking to produce through the difficult circumstance, Paul says that in turn produces character and that character produces within us hope. Now what are these two additional things that Paul adds to the benefit of trials. James says they develop perseverance. Paul says perseverance and character and hope. Well, character is an internal attitude that says we can face whatever comes. I've gone through this. I've come out the backside. I am better rather than bitter because of this trial that God has allowed into my life having experienced it once and twice and five times. God is developing a steely character within us such that we have then an internal attitude that says we can face whatever comes our way because God has shown us that and we've experienced that. The practice is making perfect. It develops character, but then that character develops hope, says Paul. And the hope is this. Hope in in Scripture means a confident expectation of a good outcome. Confident expectation of a good outcome. Now why? As God helps us through various trials over time of different types, and we emerge on the backside of those trials, better, more mature, God accomplishes his purpose in that particular thing or through that particular person. And then I face another person or thing, and he does the same thing. And I do that multiple times over time. It's developing this character, this internal attitude, which now in turn gives me absolute confidence that God has my good in mind. I know that from reading Scripture. I have now experienced that from the trials that he has brought into my life and led me through in accomplishing his purpose. And so Paul says perseverance develops character and character develops hope, this confident expectation of a good outcome. If we learn then to persevere, we will not fall into the New Year's resolution approach. You know what I mean by that? (laughs) I hope to do better this year. But I'm simply making the same list that I made last year and I got few, if any, of those checked off, a New Year's resolution approach that simply resolves to do better. We want to avoid that, and the way we avoid that is by the development of this character, this internal attitude that we can face whatever comes, and then we go through that, and we develop hope, a confident expectation of a good outcome. And when that happens, we avoid the New Year's resolution approach, and the intended outcome can be realized. And verse 4 has that intended outcome. Notice what it says. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be these two things, mature and complete. 
mature. The word is sometimes translated perfect. It doesn't mean sinless. Whenever you see perfect applied to you and me, it, does not, it never means sinless. But it does mean that we have all that we need and all that we should have. We are mature in where we are at this point and this time in our walk with Christ. So these trials are designed to produce good things. Perseverance. Paul tells us perseverance develops character and in turn develops hope. And this all conspires together to make us mature and, and complete. Complete. Having all that we need for the task at hand. Complete, having everything that we need in order to accomplish the task at hand that God has for us. But the one thing you might lack at the beginning of the trial or in the midst of the trial that will keep you from benefiting from the trial as God intends so that you persevere and develop character and hope and are mature and complete, not lacking anything. The one thing, if missing, that will keep you from benefiting in all of those ways is given beginning in verse 5. Where we're told this, if any of you lacks wisdom. Now you could read these verses and you're going along saying it all fits together, it all makes sense. My brothers, consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work so that you become mature, you become complete, not lacking anything. And then all of a sudden James says, and if you, anybody lacks wisdom? So by the way, I was thinking about wisdom just as a by the way. And if any of you doesn't have that, here's how to get it. But it's not disconnected that way. In fact, the NIV captures that by having it in the same paragraph as verse 4 and verse 3 and verse 2. Because they are all of a unit. It's all of a piece. And you know grammatically that it's of a piece because at the end of verse 4, it says you are to be mature and complete. Notice, not lacking anything. And then this word lack is used in verse 5. You are not to lack anything that you need in order to accomplish what God has assigned to you. But if any of you does lack this one thing in particular, it's going to keep all of this from happening. And that one thing is wisdom. We can respond to trials with joy. We can respond with perseverance, says James. And now he's telling us that we can respond as well, and we must respond with wisdom. With wisdom. So how is it that I get graded on this test? God gives these pop quizzes that I mentioned last week. He gives these trials that test what we truly believe. But how do I get graded? Well, here's how your grade is calculated. It's whether in what I say and in what I do, I'm demonstrating wisdom. And if in what I say and in what I do, in this trial is not demonstrating wisdom, then I still lack something. And if I still lack something, 
that I should have at this point in time that God has assigned to me, then I have not matured. If I've not matured doing the chain backwards, it's because I have not persevered. And so how can you know whether or not you have a passing or a failing grade in the midst of this test that God is giving you? It is this. In what I say and in what I do, in this trial, am I demonstrating wisdom? Well, how will I know that? I have to know what wisdom is. Some of you know how the Bible uses the word wisdom. It's different than many use the word, which is as a synonym for information, knowledge. But there's knowledge in Scripture, and then there is wisdom, and they're not the same. Knowledge is simply knowing stuff. Lots of people have knowledge. They may have amassed lots of knowledge, lots of facts, lots of information. But then the Bible uses the word wisdom in the New Testament. It's the Greek word sophia. And so we get words like philosophy from it. Philos means love. Sophia means wisdom. And a philosopher is one who, who loves wisdom. And the word in the New Testament, sophia, the word in the Old Testament, chokmah, both of them translated wisdom, and they both mean this. Applying what I know to the circumstances at hand. Wisdom is applying what I know to the circumstances at hand. Now, we've already been told in verse 3 what we know. You know that the testing of what you believe develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work making you mature and complete, not lacking anything. But if you lack this, none of that's going to be accomplished, verse 5. If any of you lacks the skill to apply what you know to the circumstance at hand, then God's good purposes in this trial, this person or thing that he has allowed into your life, will not be accomplished. Is what I do and what I say in the midst of this trial demonstrating wisdom? The application of what I know to the circumstance at hand. Well, think of your trial. You say, how do you know I have a trial? Because I know stuff. Because I've lived life and I'm living life and I read a book about you and me. And you have, as I said last week, you've just come out of a trial, you're either in a trial, you're fixing to go into a trial. So think about the one you just endured, or think about the one you're in, and think about the fact that that can be represented by not only a situation, but also by a person or persons, a person in your home, a person at work, that is trying you, testing you, and now ask yourself if you, in what you say and in what you do, if you're applying what you know is true. Are you doing that in that trial? Well, where do what I say and what I do come from? Well, they come from what I think and believe. You see, I don't just say and do stuff. You don't just say and do stuff. None of us does in a vacuum. But what I say and what I do originates, is sourced in what I think and what I believe. And this is how now 
this becomes a valid test. Is in what I'm saying and doing in this trial, this situation with this person, is what I'm saying and doing a, re- a reflection of truth? Because what I say and what I do flow from what I think and what I believe. The Bible teaches this, that thinking and believing leads to speaking. In the stuff that you're saying, in the midst of the difficulty, you are revealing what you think and what you believe. And the question is, is in what I say, am I making application of what I claim to know to be true? God is good, even if my circumstances are not. Are we saying that? God is working good in this thing, even if I don't see how. We say we believe that. Are we actually saying it in the midst of this trial? God is good to have brought this thing and this person into my life. (laughs) We say we believe God's good how often? God's good all the time. Except, I remember a couple times. God is good in bringing this person, this thing into my life. And so what I think, what I believe, leads to what I say. And so if you want to then be graded, and you should, on whether or not you're passing the test of what you truly believe, then examine what you say in the midst of the trial. And the saying then accompanies and often precedes. Our words precede what we do. We think in particular patterns that reveal themselves in what we say in our words. Jesus said it in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 34. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so in my heart of hearts, no matter what I, what I claim to believe, what I really believe is going to be evidenced in what I say in the midst of this trial. And then as I do this self-talk, you know, what I say is often to myself, right? I mean, sometimes to others, sometimes out loud, but often it's self-talk. I'm muttering to myself, I'm complaining to myself about the situation. And what I counsel myself, by what I say in the midst of this trial will translate into what I do or fail to do. If I believe that God is is good in allowing this person or this thing into my life, then I will say as much. I will counsel myself in self-talk that way. And then I will act accordingly. I will have this abiding sense of delight that we defined as joy in this difficult circumstance. And I will do things that are consistent with that. I won't find myself complaining regularly. I will seek to serve, if it's a person, I will seek to serve the best interest of this person who is trying me. Isn't that what Jesus says to do? Now here's what we do, guys and gals. We get into these adverse circumstances regularly. 
And then we react to the circumstance our own way. And let's just assume for, the, for sake of illustration, the circumstance is, a, is not a situation, it's a person. So I'm involved with this person, either in my home, either in my workplace, maybe at church. I'm involved with this person. I say I believe that God is sovereign over all of this and God has, is good and he has good purposes and intentions in all of this. I say all of that. But then this bozo comes into my life. And I begin to react to him or her my own sinful way. And we are locked into pitched battle. We don't like each other. There's low-level tension, maybe high-level tension. Maybe explosive words and, and anger that are obvious. But we, it's clear that we don't like each other. And I wish this person were not in my life. And not only do I wish they were not in my life, I don't see anything good, and I'm certainly not persevering, participating actively in producing what God wants out of this relationship with this person. And here's what we do. We react the way we want. We get involved in the relationship, skirmishing as we have defined and chosen to do, and then we say this. You know, Jesus, if you want to jump in here, please, anytime now. You see, this is what we do. We, we are handling it our own way. But it ain't working, and it ain't working over time. And we're not experiencing joy, anything but. And then if a preacher type comes along and say, would you like Jesus to help you with that? <laughs> Absolutely. Tell him to jump in, please. Hear this, friends. We want Jesus to get in the game that we have created. And Jesus doesn't get in our game. He changes the rules of the game. Jesus doesn't just jump into the game you've created and play according to your rules. He tells you, you pursue the game, the situation, the circumstance, as I have defined. And it is then that the help that I provide you will have its full effect. And Jesus, when he creates the rules of the game, they are radically different than what you do and I do when we just jump in and handle it ourselves, our own way. This is the Jesus who said, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other. If someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Is that the way we handle our relationships? This God, whose help we say we want, says a gentle answer turns away wrath. But a harsh word stirs up anger. Jesus, jump in any time. But all the while, I'm giving as good as I'm getting. Tit for tat. You say something to me, I say something back to you. But Jesus, get involved any time. The Bible says, do not take revenge. Leave room for God's wrath. It is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. 
The Bible says this as well. Is that all convicting enough, anybody? Writing to Christians, unified, blessed be the tie that binds. Our hearts in Christian love. Lawsuits against one another in the church at Corinth. And the very fact that you have these lawsuits among you, writes Paul, means you've been completely defeated already. Now notice these two phrases. Why not rather be wrong? Why not rather be cheated? Here's why, Paul. Because those aren't the rules of the game. This is America. I've got my rights. And Jesus says, I don't play according to your rules. Do not seek to call me into the game that you have defined. You play according to the rules that I define. And then, and only then, does my instruction to you work its purposes. So taking matters into our own hands, this adverse relationship that God intends for our good in the ways that James and Paul have described, we take it into our own hands and we begin to war game the relationship. Well, if I do that, then he'll just do this. I mean, if I do what God says, he's going to take advantage of that and he's just going to take and run with that. I can't do that, we say. Or a male says that of a female. And we say all of that, now hear this, friends, rather than obeying God... And seeing what he does. Do you hear that? I can't do what God says because I know he or she is going to respond this way. Rather than saying, I'm going to do what God says and then I am going to trust this good God to work in this situation. To work in my heart. To work in the hearts of of others. And so what we should do is do what God says if we truly believe what we say we believe. He's good and in control and seeking to accomplish good things. If we really believe that, then we'll obey what he says. And then we will say, now let's watch and see what God is going to do. I have no earthly idea what he's going to do. I don't know how he's going to change this adversary in my life or whether he's going to. But I know he has promised this to me. That if I obey and play according to his rules, his good purposes will be accomplished in me. So James says this, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. This wisdom is making application of what we know. What's being tested is whether we really believe what we claim to know and believe. If you find that you're failing the test in what you do and say in the midst of this difficult circumstance that may be represented by a person or persons, if you find that you're failing that, then verse 5 has the remedy. If any of you lacks wisdom, ask Who gives generously. Now, that God who gives generously is literally the giving God. Ask the giving God. And he will will give 
without finding fault. Now, the finding fault piece. You know, if you guys are still awake and you're listening to what I've been saying, more importantly, what God has been saying in His Word, then you're convicted. And you say, you know, the way James says I'm supposed to handle these adverse circumstances is not the way I'm handling one right now in my life. It's not the way I've been handling it for a long time in my life. You're convicted. And now the next verse says, now ask God to give you wisdom. <laughs> and you go, you know, I've got to go to God another time. I've been doing exactly what you've been saying, Brown, for years. Jesus, any time, come on in. And now I have to go to him again. And I have to say, I've been sinning in my attitude and in my thinking in the way I've been handling this. And that's the reason James adds that phrase. He's the giving God. He will give you this wisdom. And he will do so, notice the phrase, without finding fault. I can go to this gracious, giving God and say, Lord, I have sinned. And I have made it worse. I'm worse. He or she is worse. The kids are worse. The situation is worse. I've made it worse. Because I haven't followed what you have said. And I've known for years what you have said. And I have said that I believe what you have said. But I haven't had the wisdom to apply what I claim to believe and know. And I know I lack it because of the things I do and I say in the midst of this circumstance. O oh Lord, I have sinned. I ask for your wisdom now, from this moment forward in this circumstance, to help me to apply what I believe and know. And he will be given it. It will be given to him. It will, a guarantee, it will be given to him. Listen, this is a promise of Holy Scripture of Almighty God that if you ask him for wisdom, he will give it. Now, verse 6 does say, when you ask, you believe and you do not doubt. And here's why. It's because wisdom and unbelief are obviously incompatible, right? I mean, remember the whole chain of thought now. What's being tested is what I really believe. And, and only on the basis of really believing what God is willing to do as the giving and gracious God do I come to Him and say, Lord, I want to apply Your truth to the circumstance at hand. Here's what the Bible says. Without faith, What's the word faith? Anybody remember? Belief? Without believing, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists and that He is the rewarder of those who earnestly seek Him. You say, well, I certainly believe God exists. And I would say this, my friends, very often we behave as if we are practical atheists. That's the reason you've been taking matters into your own hands. 
because apparently you believe God can't do it in the way he's prescribed. So don't pass over that so quickly. (laughs) Must believe that he is and that he is the one who rewards. This God is not only out there, he's not some deistic God who just watches what's going on, actively involved in the circumstances of our lives. We claim to believe that, but if we come and say, Lord, I want wisdom for this circumstance, but we don't truly believe that, forgive the grammar, it ain't going to happen. Because unbelief and wisdom are completely incompatible. When we take matters into our own hands, now hear this. In effect, instead of it being we who are being tested and what we truly believe, it's in effect God who's being tested. Because we've reversed the tables. We design a different test, more to our liking, and then we ask Him to intervene, to teach, and then to give us a grade. But see, God's way, friends, is always backwards from ours. Remember? The first will be last. The least will be the greatest. You don't rule as the Gentiles do. In God's economy, it's not he who has the gold makes the rules. It's the golden rule, do unto others, as you would have them to do unto you. And so what resources does God provide, practically speaking, for this to happen? And I'll be done. God says, ask, and I will provide it. But you ask without wavering. You ask in complete belief that I am and that I am active and that I can and that I will. And God provides some things he tells us in Scripture to aid you in this. And a couple of them are these. He will provide for you the wisdom that you need in his word. Is not the word of God called the wisdom of God? Psalm 119, over and over again. So the wisdom of God contained in his word, countless examples of how he has saw his, seen his people through the situations that he has placed them in. You will not make it through the adverse circumstances of life if you are somebody who is not regularly in his word. Secondly, God provides means of grace by his people. Do not think for a moment that you will be able to withstand the difficulties of life that God brings into your life for good purposes if you are not regularly with people who are fighting the same kind of battle in the same way. And interacting with them on that basis. You were not made to do it alone. And so James is telling us, God is completely sincere in this process. It is God's process. He process. He has good intentions for the end of this process. The question is not, is God sincere? The question is, are we sincere? I said at the beginning, the only reason people endure difficulty is if they believe the end is worth it. Do you believe the end is worth it? Do you remember what the end is? The end has a name, Jesus. And the end of the trials that God allows you to undergo is for you to be conformed to the image of Jesus. Is that end worth it to you? 
to do it as God says every moment of every day because the end is to be like Jesus. That's what it means ultimately to be mature and complete, not lacking anything. It's to be like Jesus. And further, it's to see his smile at the end of the game. When it's all done, to see him smile and to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's bow before our God. Our Father, I thank you that you are the giving God, the generous God, who will give what we need without finding fault. And our God, there is so much fault to be found, and it doesn't even need to be searched for. It's right there in the way I talk and in the way I act, in the way we talk and the way we act. And so often the things we say and the things we do are quite contrary to what we claim to believe. Lord Jesus, we're duplicitous when we do this. We claim we believe, but in practice we don't. And it weighs upon us heavily because we have your Holy Spirit chiding us, prompting us to want to be like Jesus and to please you. But we know in so many ways we have not. I thank you that you give without finding fault, nonetheless. And that in the shed blood of the Lord Jesus on the cross, we have our our complete forgiveness of sins in Him. So that even though we have failed, and some of us have failed miserably, and we know that and we're confronted by that, and we're harmed by it, we're hurt by that, Lord, we know that we are still accepted in the Beloved. And we know that it's not our performance that gives us our acceptance. And so we can boldly come to you and say, Oh Lord, my Father who loves me, I have sinned. I pray that there are brothers and sisters who are doing that right now. And I pray that with firm conviction of your goodness and your active work in each of our lives and all of the circumstances that comprise our lives, with a firm conviction of your goodness, they are asking you right now for the wisdom necessary to apply what we know from your word to the circumstances you have brought into our lives. Oh Lord, helping help us to stop the unbelief that causes us to try to fix the game the way we think it should be played. Help us to have firm belief in the wisdom that you possess in putting us where we are, with whom we are, for however long you deem necessary in order to produce your good work in us. Lord, then we ask you to come alongside us, yea, to lead us in the direction that you have for us, ultimately ending in being like Jesus. Lord, I pray that your people are transacting with you now and that this week we'll be able to put into practice what you have taught us from your word to bring glory to you in the circumstances in which you placed us. We pray all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.